Uh, well, please turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Jesus told us that you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. That is both encouraging to hear and it can be an unsettling reality. It's encouraging to know that we're called the light of the world, that through us the light of Christ shines to the world around us. And it can also be unsettling. We don't always like people watching us, right? You know, if you're in a, a, war, in a war, and the Bible does say we're in a, a spiritual war, uh, then it can be dangerous to be seen, even. So being the light of the world can also bring discomfort. But Jesus didn't say anything about us when he says this that wasn't true of himself. Uh, last week we saw Jesus go to Tyre. He goes there to be alone with his disciples, but there's not a chance of that. Even going outside of Israel to a Gentile land, people still find him out. People still come to see him. This week we're going to see that Jesus' public attention is going to ratchet up even more. It's going to be back up where everybody is looking to him and seeing him. Jesus knew well that a city on a hill can't be hidden. So let's read together about what the light of the world does in his ministry. Please look at Mark chapter 7, verse 31, and we'll read down through the first part of Mark chapter 8. Mark seven thirty-one. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few fish, a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces, left over seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Delmanutha. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for feeding us regularly through your word. Thank you for sending your son to be bread for us, to feed our souls, to give us eternal life. 
Lord, I pray as we look into your word this morning that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, that you would build us up, Lord, that you would mature us. Lord, if there's sin that you want to correct, we invite you to come and make a change by your Holy Spirit. Lord, if there's ways that you want us to to love and serve and go outside of ourselves, I pray that you would guide us in that. Lord, if there's ways that you want us just to sit and hear your word and absorb this, Lord, I pray that you would do that, please. Help us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage and these two passages together are inviting us to trust in the goodness and compassion of Jesus. We'll see that as in the first story at the end of Mark 7. We see that Jesus does all things well. And in chapter 8, verses 1 to 10, we'll see that Jesus has compassion and that he has compassion on us. In our passage here, Jesus returns from the region of Tyre and Sidon after his interaction with the Gentile woman. Um, He's casted the demon out of her daughter, and now he's returned. This is northwest of Galilee. He's returned. He's come through Galilee, and he's just kept on going. And he's gone to the Decapolis, which is an area. Decapolis just means ten cities. And it was ten cities as far north as Syria was one of them. And then kind of basically south through there, a lot on the east side of the Jordan River. And that's where Jesus has likely gone. Uh, And so he's in one of the cities of the Decapolis, and he's he's continuing there. Uh, He's In fact, he's continuing to minister. Uh, This is an area that is uh, ethnically uh, mixed. It's not just Jews. There are Jews there. But he's ministering in an area where there's also Gentiles around him. Now, our two stories for today are both playing out in this context. Uh, somewhere in this area, uh, somebody brings to him, a group of people bring to him a man that is both deaf and unable to speak. And again, we see people throughout Mark's gospel begging Jesus for his mercy, begging him to intervene and to act. And here they beg him that he would just lay his hands on this man and heal him. And Jesus does something here that seems a little different than usual. There's more detail given here, things that we don't always see. He takes this man off in private. It says that he puts his fingers in his ears and that he spits and touches his tongue. Now, did he spit and put the spit on his tongue or he just spit and touch his tongue? He doesn't elaborate. Uh, but he, he does some things that we don't normally see Jesus doing when he heals. And he says that he, he looks up to heaven and he commands that the man would be opened. Why does he do it like this? You know, this, this isn't an essential part of the way that he usually heals. A lot of times he'll heal people from a distance. And people won't even see him and he'll heal them from a distance. Like the last story that we saw when he cast this demon out of this little girl. Jesus doesn't have to do it this way, so why does he? From what I've thought through and heard, the best explanation I heard uh, came from a a pastor, a theologian named Sinclair Ferguson. and He argued that what Jesus is doing when he does this is he is communicating to this man in a way that he can understand. So this man, uh, he can't hear. So if Jesus is speaking to him, he can't hear what he's saying. Uh, Instead, he is demonstrating for him what he's doing. He's communicating, this is something maybe like sign language. Essentially, he's communicating by actions what he's doing for this man. 
And he, he looks up to heaven. He's, he's instructing this man visually that it's God who's going to be doing this healing. And he performs this uh, to heal this man. Uh, he's, he's showing him that this is a divine source of healing. Also, notice that here that says that Jesus sighs when he looks up to heaven. Uh, now, I bet in that sigh, Jesus spoke volumes to his father. I don't think that he's, at this point, tired of the healing business, that he's just exhausted or he's irritated that somebody else has come to him for healing. Um, some have suggested that Jesus here is grieved by the weight of so much human suffering. The man's condition sits heavy on Jesus' heart. But here, uh, both here and in the next story, we see that Jesus' compassion uh, towards, uh, he has compassion towards those that he helps. And perhaps in this moment, the whole weight of human suffering sits heavy on Jesus as this man is standing before him in such a condition. Jesus looks on him with compassion, and then he heals the man. That's quite the miracle. Not only is he able to hear and to speak now, he actually does speak. Um, for those who haven't been able to hear for a long time, or perhaps maybe this man's never been able to hear, uh, speaking doesn't just come easy. If you've never heard before, how do you know what to say? <laughs> so uh, there may be even another layer of the miracle here that Jesus has enabled him to be able to speak and to speak in a language that people can understand. Uh, this man has been radically changed by Jesus. And in verse 36, Jesus charges him and his friends to, to keep the matter quiet, to don't, te don't tell anybody about it. Now, we've seen this before in Mark's gospel, uh, and we've also seen what comes next. Verse 36, the second half of it, says that the more that he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Now, possibly Jesus wanted to keep the excitement down. Remember earlier, he was trying to keep away from the crowds. Perhaps he's trying to, to keep it a little quieter. Um, but that's just not going to happen. Um, the more that he tells them to be quiet about it, the more they go out and share. Uh, the people respond with complete amazement. The ESV here puts it that they're astonished beyond belief. Uh, these people are just utterly astounded by what Jesus has just done. You know, they have known what this man was like before Jesus did this, and now they see him before them, hearing and speaking and interacting. They've, uh, they've never been able to interact with this man like this, and now Jesus has enabled him to be able to speak. You know, in verse 37, they respond, they say that he has done all things well. Now that is quite a, that's quite a statement. They say this in light of what Jesus has done in the life of this man. Uh, but really, it's, it's a statement that's true of Jesus far beyond this one incident. Jesus has done all things well, he does all things well, and he will do all things well. Now, you have hopefully had those experiences in your life when you see the events in your life, the way that God has worked them out, and you know that only God could do that. Only God could so work something out that that it, there's no other explanation for it. And in that moment, you see that God has done all things well. Maybe you've had those, at least those moments and experiences in your life. I hope that you have. Those are sweet moments, and they're praiseworthy, and they're exciting. But we've also probably all had experiences where things don't add up, 
where we don't yet see the power and wisdom of God's plan. There are in our lives those painful, loose ends that we might not think there's any way for them to be tied together. There's any way for something good to come out of this. And in those matters, we wait. We may yet see God's wisdom and his good plan in it uh, in this life. We might. We wait. Uh, But if we don't see it in this life, we do believe that on that day that we stand before God and he makes his plans clear to us, then we will see his wisdom. We will see his love for us. We will see that he has cared for us in every detail of our lives. And we will confess on that day that he has done all things well. On the day that we feast with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we will know that he has done all things well. In his earthly ministry, he healed all sorts of diseases and maladies. He worked so mightily that people were regularly astounded. Someday we're going to be astounded to see the way that he has worked on our behalf. There is coming a day of greater restoration for us than even what this man experiences here. Our crucified and risen Savior will bring a total restoration to our bodies in the resurrection. And God's plan of salvation and restoration will be completed. It will be finalized. And that will be according to God's timing. So whether today we can joyfully say uh, the same thing as these people here, that we can say that from the heart that he's done all things well, or whether we wait in faith, we can be confident that Jesus will have done all things well when all is said and done. Next, as we continue in our passage, we'll see that Jesus has compassion on us, just as he has compassion on these 4,000. In chapter 8, verse 1, it starts with a timestamp. It says, in those days. Now, this is more of a, a general sort of a timestamp. It, it, Mark just says generally, it's in those days that this happened. Now, is this the very next thing that Jesus did in his ministry? Or was it something farther down the road, or maybe it was even earlier. It's uh, that, that chronology. When we read a novel or a biography, we expect things to happen one right after another. Uh, that's the way we write stories. Uh, the gospel writers don't feel that, that constraint. Uh, they might bring something from earlier from Jesus' ministry in at a point because it works with the, the point that the author is making. Um, so it just says generally in those days. It might have been the next day, it might have been a week later. We don't know, and that's, that's okay. Uh, here, again, we see a great crowd gathered around Jesus, uh, and a great hunger settles in. The compassion of Jesus becomes clear in tangible ways. In verses 2 and 3, Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. Jesus sees their need, he understands what lays before them, and he has compassion on them. This, is, uh, this experience here is so similar to the feeding of the 5,000 that we saw back in Mark chapter 6. Um, some people say, well, this is basically the gospel writers got confused, and they, they had the 5,000 in one place and the 4,000 in another, and they were just jarbled about this. Well, that's silly. Uh, I think for those who were here, They know what happened, and it's certainly possible that Jesus can perform this miracle uh, more than one time. And if anything, 
It could be sloppy readers who just forgot that Jesus did it in one place or another. That probably says more about the person making those kinds of statements than it does about the gospel writers. Uh, here, we see a lot of similarities, though, with a previous miracle in Mark 6 where Jesus feeds the 5,000. But there are some differences as well. For instance, uh, here, it doesn't mention that Jesus taught the crowd. Now, some conclude from that that Jesus didn't teach them at all. And I... I find that hard to believe personally. Um, in this phase of Jesus' ministry, he is teaching everywhere he goes. Uh, I couldn't imagine 4,000 people sitting around Jesus for three days without him teaching them anything. Uh, that's just what Jesus did, did wherever he went. But I do think it's significant that Mark doesn't mention Jesus' teaching. Uh, I think Mark wants us to focus our, our attention more on the compassion of Jesus and his ability to provide where there's no other way to provide. Earlier, we saw Jesus' compassion through his teaching. Now I think there's an emphasis on the miracle and how Jesus provided when there was no way. So it's not contradictory messages. There's just uh, a unique thrust in each one. We've already seen here, Jesus says that they have come a long distance. And that people have traveled a long way and that there is a precarious return journey for them if they go home with no food. The disciples understand where Jesus is going when he talks about his compassion for these people. And so they respond early. They say, well, how can one feed these people here, uh, bread here, in this desolate place? You know, they, they put up their fight quick. Uh, they start to protest even before Jesus asks them explicitly to feed the crowd. They point out the obvious. It can't be done. But in doing that, they miss something even more obvious, that Jesus can do it. In fact, Jesus already has fed an even larger crowd. As we will see, especially over the next few weeks, the disciples are not exactly getting it. I mean, they get it, kind of. And they also don't get it. But that doesn't stop Jesus from showing his compassion on this crowd. Uh, he asks them what provisions they have. They've got seven loaves. And they've got a few small fish too. I have to imagine that even for the twelve here and for Jesus, that's got to be getting on the low end of their provisions. And it's certainly not going to make a dent in the hunger of the crowd. But as Jesus did before... He commands the crowd to sit down on the grass. Uh, Jesus gives thanks for the bread. He breaks it, and he gives it to his disciples, who then are going to hand it out. He then blesses the fish and commands that those be shared too. And once again, just like we saw in Mark 6, everybody eats and everybody's satisfied. Seven loaves go out, and of the chunks of bread that come back, it fills seven baskets. Jesus has provided abundantly where there was no means to feed this multitude. This points to who Jesus is. It actually says something about Jesus' identity. Now, in the Old Testament, we see prophets like Elijah and Elisha. They miraculously provide food for people as God enabled them. In fact, in 2 Kings 4, Elisha feeds over 100 people with what would have been considered insufficient amount of bread to do it. And there's some left over. There's some parallels between that miracle and 2 Kings 4 and here. Uh, I think those parallels are important. They are pointing to the fact that Jesus is uh, the prophet that we have seen prophesied from the Old Testament. 
Jesus had a prophetic role in his earthly ministry, both in his word and in his miraculous deeds. Uh, That point comes through here in our passage. Uh, Jesus feeds a multitude in the wilderness. Uh, And uh, so we see this declaration that Jesus is the prophet. Now, that's important to see, but that's not all of it. I mean, even a Muslim could agree that Jesus is the greatest prophet of the Bible. They wouldn't have any offense with that. But I think what else is in this passage would offend a Muslim. Uh, Because, as we see throughout the Old Testament, God is the only one who can feed his people in the wilderness. As God is leading his people Israel throughout the wilderness, he feeds them with manna. He provides food for them in the wilderness. And Jesus is doing the same thing here. He is providing food in the wilderness. And that is pointing to the fact that Jesus is God's son. He is God himself. And that is one of the key themes that we see weaving throughout Mark's gospel. As Mark puts before us, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. But even more, this work here foreshadows Jesus' work on the cross. Jesus breaks the bread in his hands and he hands it out to be eaten. He's going to do this again at the Last Supper with the apostles. The broken bread in the Lord's Supper pictures his body broken for us. Very soon in Mark's gospel, Jesus is going to be declared to be the Christ. Peter's going to say, you are the Christ. And after that, he's going to begin to prophesy about his death and his resurrection. But even here, in this episode, we see a a little bit of a picture of what will come. Bread is going to be broken, and many are going to eat and be saved. Not merely from perishing in the physical wilderness, but in the wilderness of sin that we're all born into. After Jesus heals the 5,000 in Mark, or John chapter 6, Jesus speaks of the bread of his body in verse 51. This is in John chapter 6, verse 51. He says, And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So there in John's gospel, we see that Jesus talks about this bread that he's breaking. It's a picture of his body that he's given to be broken for the life of the world. Jesus is going to yield his body to be broken And through him, he's going to feed many. All those who come to Christ and by faith eat of this bread will live forever on that food. And for us who are in Christ, we continue to go to Christ for our food. He is the one who sustains us in our journey in this world. He is the one who feeds us in the wilderness and sustains us. He has compassion on us when we are weary. Do you believe that the one who died to save your soul cares about the tangible details of your life? Do you believe that the one who died for you cares about those physical details in your life? You should. You should believe that. What better illustrations do we have of this fact than the Gospels themselves, where we see Jesus meeting and loving, revealing God to us through himself, revealing God's care for such flesh and blood issues. We see it again and again in the Gospels, where Jesus, in displaying the love of God, cares for people in very tangible details. It's not as if the compassion of Jesus has cooled off over the last couple thousand years, or if the care of God is different than what we see there. God still cares about our very practical matters. He cares for you. I hope you believe that. Notice another thing here. 
Jesus uses his disciples in this miracle. He brings them in in this miracle. He breaks the bread and he gives it to them to pass out and probably others pass it out from there. You know, Jesus didn't have to use his disciples. You know, he could have just done it himself. Even though they didn't immediately believe and anticipate this miracle, he uses them anyways. Now, why does God use us? Why does God incorporate us into what he's doing in this world? I think the simple answer is because he wants to. <laughs> it pleases him to do that. Uh, it pleases him for us to serve him. It's not that he needs it, but he's glad to do that. And we glorify him when we do that. He doesn't enlist us because he desperately needs us. You know, if he needed willing and ready servants, he could just use the angels. Uh, they obey a lot better than we do. Uh, he includes us because it pleases him, and it's for our good. Now, just think about evangelism, for instance. You know, we might rather that God would send an angel to proclaim the good news to our neighbors and family members. Uh, you know, it's what he did with the shepherds, right? Uh, he sent the angels to declare it to the shepherds. Uh, he could do that with our neighbors. Maybe that'd be even more persuasive to our family than if we did it ourselves. But you know, that wasn't God's plan for spreading his, gospels, his gospel. Uh, he, could, he could have used angels, but he preferred to use his children. He is pleased to have us share the good news that he has saved us through. And that displays his wisdom as well. You know, angels can't give first-hand experience knowledge of having God saved them and redeemed them through Jesus. They can't do that. We can. Angels can't relate to the shame and guilt and power of sin that we have experienced. But when we share the gospel with others, and when we talk with others, we can relate to that. Angels can't invite others to be a part of the church where we're growing in grace, but we have that ability. It is God's wisdom not only to save us through the gospel of Jesus, but to entrust us to carry that to others. Now that's a pretty scary thing. I, I myself wouldn't entrust it into the hands of people to carry this message. And yet, that's what God has done. That's his wisdom and his plan in doing that. He entrusts us with that gospel message. So I don't know, what are we doing with it? What are we doing with that? I hope we're preserving it. That's the, the fight of faith. It's for us to continue to believe God's word, to believe his gospel, to cherish it, to pass it on to our family members, and to keep passing it on. That, it's an entrustment for us until Christ comes. <laughs> And he, in his wisdom and in his good pleasure, has done that. He's given it to us to, to steward. It's, it's his wisdom to do that. You know, further, if God has done this great work on our behalf, is he asking us too much if he asks us to share it for his sake? One last thing I want to point out in this passage, last point of application Notice that Jesus enlisted his disciples here to extend his works of compassion to others. As his disciples today, we're still called to do that. Maybe we don't have physical bread in our hands. Maybe we do. Uh, maybe that's not the situation he's blessed us with, but he's, he is calling us to extend his compassion to others around us in his name. What skills or gifts or resources has God blessed you with that he might call you to use to bless others. I'm not the first to draw this comparison, uh, but I'd say we don't, we don't want to be like the Dead Sea. 
know what the Dead Sea is. It's the, you've got the Sea of Galilee north, the Jordan River goes down to the Dead Sea. And the, the Dead Sea has the Jordan River flowing into it, but nothing flows out of the Dead Sea. Nothing, there's no river or channel or anything that flows out of the Dead Sea. And as year and year goes by, and more water goes into it, and nothing comes out, the Dead Sea actually keeps getting saltier. And plus it's drying up, and so it's getting saltier and saltier every single year. You know, some people get saltier and saltier uh, as life goes on because they've never learned to give away what God has given to them. And there's a difference between being the salt of the earth and being just plain salty. God has given to us so that we would give to others. He feeds us and he blesses us that we would be a blessing to others. We want to have channels going out of our lives to bless others. We don't want to be the bus stop of God's kindness. So we see here the compassion of Jesus. We see that he has done all things well and he brings us into that to bless others through our lives. So let's close in prayer together. Father, we anticipate the day when we will see you and you will wipe away every tear. We look forward to the day when we see your wisdom and we see your love for us, when the lie of Satan that says that you don't really love us, when that is seen for the lie and the blasphemy that it is, and when our hearts can grasp your deep care for us. Lord, we look forward to that day. I pray that you would sustain us today in our fight of faith. Please help us to walk in a, a wearying land, a land that tires us out. Help us to be sustained by you, Lord. Feed us and please use us in this day to bless others. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.